scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, and we'll be reading chapter 9, verses 30 through 37, and chapter 10, verses 15 through 31. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But, then, but when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, it is. Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal and little, a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal and his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came. So there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal. And they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. 
And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing? Good. You all look great and awake and happy to be here. I'm just going to think that the whole time. Um, let me pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, Lord, we uh, come to you this morning and just we confess that we are pulled in so many different directions. Our desires take us all over the place, God. Uh, would you please focus our hearts on you? Lord, would you help us to value what you value and love what you love, God? Help me to love what you love, Lord. Um, we need your grace. We need your mercy. And we ask uh, that you would just show your mercy to us, that you would help us to see your goodness and your grace and your kindness in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we look to you. There is no one else we can trust. There is no one else we can turn to. God, salvation is in you. Everything we need is in you. God, help us to remember that. Help us to trust in that, in your all-sufficiency. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we've made it a pretty long way through the book of Kings. Remember, in the Hebrew manuscripts, Kings is just one book. The, the division between First and Second Kings is artificial in our English Bibles, but we have come quite a ways. So in our English Bibles, we're now in Second Kings, uh, all the way up to chapter 10. And what we've seen so far is, uh, or, or more recently what we've seen, is the closing out of the conflict between uh, Ahab, the evil king of Israel, Ahab, who introduced Baal worship in Israel. Uh, we've seen the conflict between Ahab and the conflict between Elijah. So Ahab versus Elijah. We've seen that come to a close. Ahab has died. God has exercised his judgment on, on Ahab. Uh, the mantle of prophet has also transitioned from Elijah to Elisha. So now we're in Elisha's ministry, and Elisha has now anointed a new king in Israel, since Ahab has now deceased, he's passed away, he has anointed a new king in Israel named Jehu. And Jehu, he's an interesting character, uh, erratic, crazy, violent. Um, but to really understand Jehu, we need to go back for a second and look at 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings 19, verses 16 through 18.
All right, here God is speaking to Elijah, and he says to him in verse 16, And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So what we see here is that God cares about his people. He cares enough about his people to remove uh, the people and the things that would turn them away from him. All right, so he's exercising judgment against the cult of Baal. He cares about his people enough to take away the things that are hurting them. And God is going to do that by three means. We have Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. So these are instruments. These people are, in this sense, instruments of God's judgment. They're vehicles for God to accomplish his purpose of removing Baal from Israel. And it is really Jehu who is the one who is responsible for eliminating Baal worship. So like in baseball terms, he's the closer. He's the closing pitcher. He's the one who strikes out Baal and Baal worship in Israel. Jehu, we got to remember, is an instrument of God's judgment. Now, this is an interesting question for church, but who here has seen the TV show Breaking Bad? Okay, don't be shy. Okay, I'm your pastor. You can confess your sins to me. Um, Breaking Bad, we got a main character, Walter White. Now, I've come to realize that this is actually Ron Coy's alter ego. Okay, we can all see the similarities there. Baldness and oldness. Um, and especially after last Sunday, when Ron really got into character, do you know who I am? Right, we can see that, I think. Uh, now, what about Batman the Dark Knight? I think we've probably all seen Batman the Dark Knight. Yeah, the Joker, iconic performance by Heath Ledger. Our last movie, John Wick. Who's seen John Wick? Now, it's time for me to confess something to you. John Wick is one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah, it's like right up there with Lord of the Rings for me. Hey, I don't know who made me a pastor, but I love it. You know, uh, one time I was driving through Florida, I think it was the Florida Panhandle. I stopped at a random gas station and I had long hair at the time. And so I get out of my car and some, some random guy tells, comes up to me and says, has anyone ever told you that you look just like Keanu Reeves? And I was like, so excited about that. That's, <laughs> hey, that's how you know you're doing something right when so, some hillbilly tells you that you look like Keanu Reeves. So I love John Wick. Now, what do all three of these characters have to do with one another? How are they similar? Don't, don't think too hard about it. How are they all similar? Re revenge? Yeah, anti-heroes? They're violent? They're lunatics. They're all crazy. They're all crazy people. But we can see that they're all crazy with a specific 
purpose, a specific focus. Right? Walter White is focused on his meth empire. The Joker is focused on destroying Gotham City. And John Wick is focused on taking revenge for his dog and his stolen car. Now, there, there is, there's a line in John Wick. You can go to the next slide. There's a line in John Wick. Uh, this Russian gangster is speaking to his son, and they're talking about how, how John Wick, he's, he's not the boogeyman, actually. He's the guy that you send to kill the boogeyman. And he says that John is a man of focus, a man of commitment, a man of sheer will. Okay, like John Wick, Jehu is the guy that God sends to kill the boogeyman that is Baal, the Baal cult in Israel. Jehu is a man of focus, a man of commitment, a man of sheer will. You read his story and he has no regard for the consequences. Right? He's just out there. His focus is to eliminate Baal worship. Jehu was an instrument of God's wrath, of God's judgment against this cult that took root in Israel. So let's look at the evaluation of Jehu's rule. So that's 2 Kings chapter 10, uh, verses 28 through 31. Here, God says about Jehu, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Now God says about Jehu that he did all that was in his heart to remove Baal worship from Israel. That's, that's high praise. That is, a, that is a huge thing. That is a huge accomplishment for, for God to uh, grant to Jehu. But we all know that there's something missing. Just from his actions, we can see that something is not right about this guy. As compelling, as bold, and as zealous as he was, there was something missing in Jehu's life. There was something missing in his character. And that something was zeal for the Lord in its truest sense. You got to think Jehu was a self-proclaimed zealot. He says to his servant in verse 16, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And then he proceeds to slaughter everyone. So he is a self-proclaimed zealot, but as we'll see this morning, he lacked the truest components of, of real zeal. That brings us to our main idea. Zeal, true zeal, 
is an absolute devotion to what God values. And what our text this morning will teach us is that zeal is one, resolute. Two, is it, exclu- it, it is exclusive. And three, it is all-encompassing. And just so there's no ambiguity here, I've lined up uh, Jehu's evaluation according to this grid. Okay, so Jehu was resolute. He did good there, but he didn't do well on points number two, and then he completely failed on number three. So zeal is resolute, it is exclusive, and it is all-encompassing. True zeal is a commitment to God's glory in all circumstances, at all times, without any exceptions. True zeal is an absolute devotion to everything that God values. So let's move on here. Let's take a closer look at point number one. Zeal is resolute. And this is uh, where Jehu, he shines a bit, right? Because we see that Jehu, his response was immediate. His obedience was immediate. You know, like when you want your kids to obey you, you don't want them to like take five minutes to obey you and go do what you've asked them to do. You want their obedience to be immediate. And that's what we see about Jehu. His obedience was immediate and he showed no hesitation. The first thing that he does once he's anointed by Elisha's servant is he kills the two kings of Israel and Judah. These are two wicked kings that were actively leading their people into idolatry and Baal worship. He kills them. And then he, from there, he goes on to take out Jezebel. Now, Ahab and Jezebel, uh, they were the king and queen of Israel. They were supposed to shepherd uh, their people, but they mistreated their, their people in a, a massive, massive way. Um, instead of shepherding their people, they took advantage of them. Right? They had a neighbor named Naboth. We talked about him a couple weeks ago. But they had a neighbor, and they, they liked his land. They wanted his land. So they offered him money, but when he denied them, what did they do? Well, they killed him, and they took his property anyways. So they were despicable. Um, So Jehu shows up at the palace in Samaria, and Jezebel comes out to taunt him. So, but then he says, uh, he sees some eunuchs up in the window, and he says, who is on my side? Uh, We got a little picture of that here. He says, who is on my side? Turns out... They were on his side, and that is just underlining the point of how poorly Ahab and Jezebel had treated their people. Even her own servants, uh, the people who are taken care of in her household, right, they are turning against her. So they throw out their window. Um, You know, I, I remember saying that this was a kid's book. I'm walking back on that now a little bit. But it is still a book, since it's got pictures, it's still a book for adult males, <laughs> like myself. So she's thrown out the window, uh, her body splatters on the ground, and then uh, here's what we see in chapter 9, verse 36. When they came back, And told Jehu, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which 
he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Right? God has exacted his judgment over this evil person who has completely mistreated his people. After this, Ahab proceeds to destroy the entire dynasty of Ahab, every single person that was associated with him. The author of Kings says, And when he, Jehu, came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Again, this is God's judgment coming upon these wicked people uh, that are leading uh, those who would be faithful astray. This is God's judgment being exacted, and Jehu is an instrument of that judgment. Now, I think something we can learn here from Jehu is that we see he isn't worried about making enemies. He's not worried about the danger that is associated with his calling. He's not worried about any kind of political aftermath, right? He's just seriously pissed off two large kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And he's uh, kind of running through Israel, but there's still this whole other nation of Judah that is going to remain angry with him. So he's not worried about political aftermath. He's not worried about making political allies. He is solely focused on the task that God had given him. His response, he showed no hesitation and his response was immediate. Okay, this is one of the few positive things I would highlight about Jehu. He was more concerned about completing the task that God had given him than politics, than making political allies. He was more concerned about the task that God had given him than even the danger that was associated with what he was doing. So church, this should challenge us a little bit. This should cause us to ask ourselves, well, what exactly am I concerned with? What am I concerned about? Am I concerned about immediately, with no hesitation, pursuing the task that God has given me? What are we concerned about, church? Reputation, gain, what people think about us? Or are we concerned with the task that God has given us? Now, thankfully, the task that God has given us is very clear. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 up on the screen. This is the task that God has given us. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sanctification is God's will for your life. It is what he has put before you to pursue a changed heart and a changed life, to be holy as God is holy. That is the task that God has given us. You know, I'll, I'll admit this applies to me as well. We're, we're tempted 
to be zealous about anything other than sanctification. Right? I'm more inclined to be zealous about a stupid, made-up action movie than I am about my own sanctification. But true zeal does not pick and choose the parts of Christianity that seem the most appealing. No, true zeal is not half-hearted. It is resolute. It is exclusively God-centered, and it is all-encompassing. And this is where we get to our second point. True zeal is about the exclusive worship of God. The exclusive worship of God. Here, Jehu does okay. Right? He gets one check mark, but one X. He did all right. So let's start with what he did right. The text tells us that he made the temple of Baal a latrine. Okay, a place for excrement. What he did really is he took this ornate decorative temple and he showed us what it really is. This place of pagan idolatry really is nothing but a latrine. He showed us the true nature of idol worship. Okay, you think about what was said about Jezebel as well. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field. That's what God said. Okay, that is the true nature of idol worship. It is filth. It is disgusting. No matter what sort of idol we're tempted to serve. You know me, I'm tempted to serve the idol of security. It's filth. It's disgusting. So Jehu, he proceeds to demolish Baal worship in Israel. He makes a clever ploy to gather all the priests, all the prophets, all the worshipers of Baal in one place, and then he slaughters them. He goes full John Wick. And the text says that he wiped out Baal worship from Israel. Jehu, verse 28, Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. He eradicated, he erased it. And we need to think for a second about how radical this is, really. Because there is a reason why Baal worship was so tempting for the Israelites. You know, as us kind of modern people, we're like, oh, these ancient Israelites must have been so ignorant for, for worshiping an image. But actually, there's, there's a bit of reason why they were so tempted towards this. You see, the industry and the wealth of Israel, it revolved around three crops. Grain, so wheat, olives, and grapes. So you have bread, olive oil, and wine. This was like their whole industry. This is how they made all their money. This is how they provided for their families, how they provided for generations to come. Okay, this is how they built their economy. So when they entered the land, when they came into this promised land, and they saw all the nations around them, having some success in their harvests, the first thing that they would ask, or the first thing that they would be tempted to ask is, well, what are your farming practices? Right? How are you turning a profit? And their neighbors would say, well, we worship Baal. So the next obvious question is, well, how? How do you worship him? 
You know, just the regular stuff, typical stuff. We build some altars. We make some temples. We sacrifice some livestock. Oh, and there's one more thing. We have sex with cult prostitutes, temple prostitutes. Baal worship was deeply connected to wealth and sex. The Israelites lived in a culture that was dedicated, all the surrounding area was dedicated to material wealth and depraved and promiscuous sexual practices. Does that sound familiar at all? We think these ancient Israelites were so foolish for worshiping images. But this is what all the culture around them saying was the road to blessing. This is what everyone else was saying worked. Right? You want to be happy? You want blessing? You want to provide for your families? Well, just do what we do. Worship Baal. You know, they really were ignorant to believe the promises of the culture around them. Brothers and sisters, when we believe the promises of the culture around us, we are showing that we are just as ignorant as these idol-worshiping Israelites. Like the Canaanites, our culture is obsessed with material wealth and depraved and promiscuous sexual practices. The, The final compelling thing about Jehu is that he saw all of this in in the culture around him. And he said, no, not me. I don't want any part of it. He understood in some sense that his allegiance was supposed to be exclusive. So he took every measure to eradicate Baal worship from Israel. But the truth is, He really didn't go far enough. Jehu shows us that he is still an idolater at heart. This is the extent of any sort of positive example we can glean from Jehu. Jehu was zealous about eradicating the enemy, but he was not entirely devoted to everything that God values. You see, true zeal would not have just eliminated false worship. True zeal would have restored true worship in Israel. Zeal would have restored true worship because God values his glory and God values his people. Okay, that's, that's pretty much how we can summarize what God cares about, his glory and his people. That is what is important to God. And the place where those two things converge, his glory and his people, is in the house of the Lord. It's amongst us. It's amongst the temple that Jesus has built around his life, death, and resurrection. Church, turn with me to John chapter 2. We'll read verses 13 through 19. 
The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus is here in the temple, and uh, he acts like a madman. He goes crazy, right? He kicks everyone out, overturns the table. He, he overturns the tables. He makes a mess of everything. He acts like a crazy person. All right, Jesus was not concerned about what these people thought about him. He saw what his culture was like. Right? This was normal for Israelite culture to have these practices going on in the temple. He saw his culture, and like Jehu, he said, no, I want no part in it. Jesus was concerned with, this, with the things, with everything that God valued. And that means that he was more concerned about restoring worship. So like, like Jehu, Jesus saw his culture and wanted no part in it. But unlike Jehu, Jesus' zeal was all-encompassing. Jesus cared about God's glory among God's people. This brings us to our final point. We've seen that Jehu was a self-proclaimed zealot. He said, come with me and look at my zeal for the Lord. But he lacked the most important feature of true zeal. And that is the fact that real zeal is wholehearted. It is all-encompassing. Look with me at 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 29 through 31. Again, we're reviewing the evaluation of Jehu's life. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab, According to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. According to 2 Kings, the reason that uh, Jehu was not truly zealous for the Lord The thing that kept him from being truly zealous for the Lord was the sin of Jeroboam. You guys remember, the sin of Jeroboam was that he built two golden calf idols to place at the borders of the territory of Israel. And this was all about separating Israel from Judah. This was all about making sure that he could retain control of this kingdom. 
This was about grabbing power and holding on to power. That is the heart of the sin of Jeroboam. And while the text doesn't tell us explicitly, Jehu's actions clearly, clearly show us that he was all about taking power and doing whatever he could to keep a hold of it. Jehu's zeal was insufficient because he was more concerned about himself. Jehu's zeal was about Jehu, not about Yahweh. You know, we need a king who demolishes idolatry. We need a king who shows God's superiority over idols and pagan worship. But equally, we need a king who shows God's superiority over our own hearts, over ourselves. We need a king who is zealous for God, a king whose zeal is an absolute devotion to what God values. We need a king who prizes what God loves even more than he prizes his own life and his own desires, even a desire as basic as self-preservation. All right, we're all familiar with the end of Jesus' life, right, where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays to the Lord three times. He prays to the Lord three times that he would take away the cup of suffering that he was about to endure. Jesus did not want to endure the pain of God's displeasure, of God's wrath against sin. I mean, think about it. Jesus had always loved the Lord with all of his heart, his mind, his strength, and his soul. There was not a single moment in his life where he did not love God with everything that he had. So just from an emotional level, think about how painful it would have been for him to experience the displeasure of God, the hatred of God against sin. Not to mention the excruciating pain that he was about to experience on the cross. Yet all three times Jesus prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was more concerned with God's glory and God's people than he was his own life. This is true zeal. This is the zeal of our king. And as king, Jesus was free not only from the temptations of, or he not only defeated the temptations that were uh, applicable to his culture, okay, he experienced those temptations, but he defeated those temptations. So he not only freed us from the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil, but he has also freed us from the tyranny of self. Because Jesus 
was not tied. He was not ruled by the tyranny of being self-serving. That is why he was able to, de to defeat death, the greatest opponent, the greatest enemy. As conquering king, Jesus brings us into this freedom. He freed us from sin, death, and the devil, and he has also freed us from, the own, from our own oppression, the oppression of ourselves. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15. Second Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 15. Here Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." Paul was speaking to a context where outward appearances were really, really important. People really valued outward appearances. But he says there is a different way to live because he has concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Paul concludes that Jesus really and truly has taken away every single sin. Why has he done that? So that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. Church, if we're honest, we need freedom from ourselves. I mean, you all are wonderful people. I'm sure you're all very kind. You've been very kind to me. But you make a terrible idol. You make a terrible God. I make a terrible idol for myself. I mean, just think about how many promises to yourself you've broken. Right? It's October. What, what kind of things were you saying to yourself uh, at the turn of the year? What kind of commitments did you make to change your life? Right, how's all that going right now in October? Hopefully it's going well. But we are constantly breaking promises that we make to ourselves. Right, think about the worst kinds of things that you have said to yourself. The worst kinds of thoughts that you have thought about yourself. If some stranger walked through those doors and started saying those kinds of things to your children, I mean, we would be outraged. We would be furious. Wouldn't stand for it. Church, we make terrible idols for ourselves. We need someone who can free us from the oppression of ourselves. The good news is that Jesus has put away every single sin, even the sin of self-idolatry. The good news 
is that Jesus has shown his superiority over every idol, even the idol of self. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we, God, we're so thankful that you have defeated every single enemy. God, we look to you, we take refuge in your strength, God. Lord, help us to love what you love, help us to hate what you hate. God, help us to be devoted to your values. Help us to love your glory and love your people. God, thank you for doing what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for freeing us from every single oppression. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.